Welcome to Author News Weekly, the weekly news show by authors for authors. We read the news so you don't have to. Join our panel of best-selling authors each week as we take a deep dive into the publishing world, both indie and traditional. Author News Weekly. Yeah, whatever. Right. Welcome back to Author News Weekly. I'm R.A. McGee, and I have another one of our special episodes. You might remember that I interviewed one of our tremendous panel and just got to know him a little bit better. I think it felt good to know him a little more. You know, just makes you feel good on the inside. And so I want to do the same thing this week with the author of the Micah Reed series, as well as the Lane Parish spy thrillers. He's a guy who gave me the single best line in a blurb that I ever had, and I still use it to this day. The one and only Mr. Jim Heskett. Hello, I am Jim Heskett, and I hope to also make RA feel good, which is the point of this interview series, apparently. I'm already getting warm and fuzzies. <laughs> I'm already getting warm and fuzzies, man. Thanks for hopping on, man. I appreciate sure. it. Yeah, good times. I just thought it'd be good to get to know you guys a little bit better. You know, we're always chatting about random happenings in the author world. And I think it's good for our listeners to know that you guys are real people. You're not just book slinging badasses. You know, you didn't hatch is what I'm saying. Did mm-hmm. you? Sure. Um, okay. not, not as far as I know. Okay. All right. According good to my parents. Okay. So that would be awkward if you did have right. And I asked you that, you'd be like, that's, <laughs> that's a touchy subject. <laughs> Don't get me started on that. My prehensile tail that I had that I had to get cut off. Is it, what's that in a, what was it? Shallow how where he, he had the like vestigial tail. I don't remember. <laughs> It's awful. I don't know. Could could I ask you, R.A., what was the blurb line I gave you that was so good? Oh, it was killer, man. It was for my first book in the Blackthorn series. It's called Sanctioned, uh, Straight Spy Stuff. And the first line in the blurb that you reworked for me was, all he wanted was a quiet retirement, but there's a bullet out there with his name on it. Ah. And it just sounded so good. Like I read it, I was like, oh, that's nice. That's pretty good. (laughs) It is. You know, I think you did a a great job, man. And I've since like written all the other blurbs myself, you know, Mm -hmm. but that was just so snappy and it set the tone. So that was really good stuff. I appreciated it very much. Okay. So I asked Nick this and I'm asking if you can guess Nick's. Okay. But first I'm going to ask you. Okay. When we were in high school, Right. Whenever we were in high school, there was always some band that we thought was the truth. Right. It was everything. And we listened to them. And if Mm -hmm. someone asked us now, we might pull back a little from our former assessment of that band. Okay. Do you have such a band? Um, well, I'm going to first say that Nick's guess was Smash Mouth. <laughs> no, no. Or Chumba Wumba. <laughs> Either one of those. I get knocked down and get back up again. Was that it? Was that his band? No, no, it was worse. <laughs> he goes, uh, he says, I'll let you think for a second. He says, uh, he goes, what am I supposed to say? Like Creed or something? How am I going to answer this question? <laughs> and then we talk for a few seconds and he goes, okay, it was Creed. <laughs> huh. Okay. Interesting. So. Um, I don't know. In high school, I don't know if there's a band that I was really into in high school that now I look back on with disdain, but Mm -hmm. I mean, my favorite band in high school was Blind Melon. Mm. They were really just a one hit wonder, but you know, I, me and my big group of friends thought they were prophetic and we would study the lyrics and find all the hidden meanings and everything. But I ain't ashamed to say I like Blind Melon. They're a good band. (laughs) I dig it, man. I dig it. That video was so good. 
It was so good with the little bumblebee, man. Girl. Yep. Yeah, yeah. But I think that's me just being like a surface level yeah. aficionado. You know the deep cuts of <laughs> Blind Melon, right? Yeah. Uh, good times, man. Good times. So when you were in high school, man, were you living in the Grapes of Wrath back then? <laughs> um, <laughs> I did. I did grow up in Oklahoma. And so, yeah, I went to school in Oklahoma and it was not the Grapes of Wrath. And Oklahoma grew up in, you know, in Tulsa, which is a big, is a reasonably sized city of like half a million people in the greater Tulsa. And, you know, we had all the fine modern conveniences like cable television and cars and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So I had a pretty normal upbringing as far as I know. Probably more belt buckles and cows than most people. Mm-hmm. Good times. Good times for both of those belt buckles and cows, really. Good times, man. So then I know that you are living in the mountains, you know, Mm -hmm. as we speak. What kind of prompted you to leave? What is it? Tornado Alley? Is that what they call it? Yeah. yeah. The Breadbasket, Tornado Alley, the Church District of the United States. Yeah. Those things all apply to Tulsa. Yeah. Well, I didn't want to live there forever. So in my 20s after college, I got a degree in psychology. At that time, very intent to become a therapist. Mm-hmm. And so I applied to this hippie grad school in Boulder, Colorado called Naropa, mm-hmm. which is like a Buddhist university. They had a really great master's degree program for psychology. And mm-hmm. I came out here, I applied for it, and they only let in, you know, like 10 people a year. So I didn't get in, but I just fell in love with Colorado while I was trying to get into the school. And then so I just like quit my job, packed up, told my girlfriend I was moving and came out here. And then I just did it. Dude, I like that. That's a great story. It's funny because I could actually see you as a therapist. Like you're very like measured and like reasoned with the way that you speak. And uh, I could I could see you as a therapist. I didn't know that about you. Thank you. I worked in mental health for a few years, you know, doing mm-hmm. counseling and that kind of stuff, but not like bachelor. I mean, bachelor's level stuff, not like master's level therapy. But yeah, I've worked with people for several years. And then I didn't want to stop doing that when I moved to Colorado, but the industry is very different. And I basically just couldn't get a job mm-hmm. in mental health in Colorado. So I stumbled into working in software mm-hmm. and then had 15 years of working various day jobs for software companies here. Mm-hmm. And I just sort of backed up into it completely accidentally. Hmm. Software stuff. That's uh. It sounds like the kind of thing they'd make like a Netflix show about, like a, a group of like software guys hanging out, saying crazy stuff. And obviously, I know you don't do it anymore, but how was the software game for you, the corporate life? Educational. You know, I've worked for a few different companies. I got to work for a teeny tiny company that was always on the verge of collapse for a few <laughs> years. And that was an interesting experience. And then I got to work for a medium sized software company that was then bought by a giant software company. So I got to experience what that was like. But also because of that software company job, I got to live overseas for a year. So I lived in Australia and Singapore for a while. Okay. And that was that's where I got I got married in Australia. And it was amazing. It was just a wild, wild year. Did you meet your wife in Australia or no, I met her here in okay. Colorado and we'd been dating for like a year when I got the opportunity to go. And I was like, come with me. Just, you got to come with me. Mm-hmm. It was perfect timing because she was mad at her job at then. So I was like, let's screw everybody and just leave. So we did. I like it, dude. I like it. So aside from a really great time bonding with your then girlfriend, now wife and getting married, what's the coolest thing about Australia, man? The coolest thing about Australia, I guess it's just that it's so different. You know, you can't really know what it's like to what another country is like until you've paid rent there. 
mm. I think. Mm. You know, because you can go to Bali or, or Thailand or Beijing for a week and feel like, oh, I know what it's like in Bali now. But mm-hmm. you don't really know what it's like to be somewhere until you've spent an extended amount of time and had to ride all their public transportation and pay bills and you get start getting the local newspaper in another country. It's a completely different world that's so foreign to everything mm. that I had experienced in my whole life mm-hmm. that it was just a wild adventure. I dig it, man. I dig it. By nature, are you a traveler? Do you have wanderlust? Or was that kind of a one-off for you, like getting over there and, and being gone for extended periods of time? No, I've always been a big traveler. I'm really big on American national parks, and I'm, I'd like to see all of them. I've been mm-hmm. to about half of the national parks. I've been to 30-something, I think. Okay. And so things have changed since we had a kid and bought a house. But yeah, I've always had a lot of wanderlust. Okay. I dig it, man. I dig it. So at some point, you come back to the States. And what's it look like when you are presumably still doing like software stuff and you decide to write a book, like you get together and you put in a book together. What's that look like? Did you just write to write or did you kind of know that you wanted to become an author? Well, before I wanted to be a therapist, the first thing I wanted to be was an author. Really? You know, since I was very young, I was the kid on the playground who, when it was my turn to direct that playtime in the playground, like had a narrative arc to it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then in my 20s, I had this roommate who was interested in writing a screenplay. Mm-hmm. And I'd had this idea for a story kicking around and I pitched him the story and he's like, let's write a screenplay. We were roommates for a couple of years and we wrote a few screenplays and then tried to enter them into contests and get agents and yada yada. And of course, we never got anywhere. But then I moved to Australia and kind of gave up on that. But then when I came back, what's funny is I started playing this video game called Alan Wake. Tell me about it. I've never heard of it. It's a horror video game, basically, where you fight demons with a flashlight. But the point of the story is that you play a character who's an author. He's an author who had accolades on his first book, and he's got, but he's got writer's block on his second book. And so in the video game, I played this author character, and they made me miss it. Mm. It made me miss writing. So mm-hmm. actually, it was a video game that got me back into writing. Hmm. And so I spent a few years like writing you know, my great novel, that I was trying to get a literary agent for. And of course that didn't happen. Mm. But over time I realized that I didn't have to have an agent and that it was, it really wasn't exactly a merit based system to begin with. Mm -hmm. And I very, I don't know what the right word is. I really don't like systems that appear to be merit based and are not Sure, (laughs) systems that claim to be merit based Mm -hmm. and then are not. And then it's really a lottery and it just depends on the literary agent's mood that day, et cetera, et cetera. So I started self-publishing in 2015, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, with my third novel that I'd written. I spent like three years writing my first novel, a year writing my second novel, and then my third novel was six months. Mm -hmm. Now it takes me about three months to write a novel. Okay. So... Did I answer your original question? Because I kind of forgot what you asked me. Well, I was seeing... This is good. No, we can get there. Don't worry. So in... 2015, when you first started self-publishing, there Mm -hmm. wasn't really the same kind of infrastructure that's around it now. You know, there's podcasts everywhere. I mean, hell, we have like podcasts together. You know, we've got multiple Mm -hmm. podcasts. There's podcasts everywhere. There's courses and stuff like that. How did you educate yourself about the self-publishing process in 2015? Wow. Back then there was K-Boards. Mm-hmm. And Rest there, peace. <laughs> is it gone now? I don't know. I haven't. It's pretty much dead, though. I think 
2015, there were some early adopter people who were around back then, like Hugh Howey mm-hmm. was blogging a lot and talking a lot about how to get into self-publishing. And JF Penn was around them too. Joanna Penn was around mm-hmm. back then. But there was a whole lot of misinformation just everywhere. You know, ads didn't exist. And it was all about trying to get a book bub or trying to get onto the bits. What well, There was some Pixel mm-hmm. of Ink was a huge one way back then. If you got into Pixel of Ink for your free days, you'd get 60,000 downloads. Mm. But it's really kind of strange because it's been an industry, the self-publishing industry. We've all kind of grown up together in the self-publishing industry, you know? Mm-hmm. And we've gone through that phase where nobody knew anything because there weren't enough people teaching it to the phase now where there's a whole bunch of misinformation out there because there are maybe too many people teaching it. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know if that's true. It just sounded nice. So I said it. No, I think there's a lot of misinformation just from lack of knowledge. And now there's a lot of misinformation because of a lack of a barrier to entry to try to teach people things, you know? And I think you're definitely right about that. So how long were you working and still putting out like a productive amount of books, you know, maybe not your first one or your second one, but when you started putting out your books, how long were you working and trying to balance both of those? Because if I remember right, I was first introduced to you, you were the juggling author, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so I feel like you were big on trying to make all these things happen at the same time. How was that process for you when you were working and being a a prolific writer it was exhausting Mm. it was also very productive you know in college i didn't usually have a job and i would just focus on going to school but my senior year of college um my last year of college i was working full-time and going to school and that was probably one of the happiest and best times of my life because i never had time to stop and think about anything other than what i had to do Mm. Mm. (laughs) and that's kind of how when I first came to writing that's kind of how I treated it like I was working at the day job and I started working at the last day job I had started in 2016 and went to 2019 is when I left Mm. and 2016 has been my most productive year ever I think I wrote half a million words that year or 400,000 words I published six books in one year while I was working 40 hours a week and my son was a year and a half Mm -hmm or between six months and a year and a half is when I was writing that most. And I wrote, you mentioned The Juggling Author. That was a book that I wrote about. I was able to budget all my time because I know people who write way faster than me. Mm -hmm. You know, I know people who can chuck out 50,000 words in a week and I don't do that. But I just developed a system that enabled me to get through all the pieces I need to be able to budget time. This is a better way to say it. I figured out how to be able to publish a book in three months with only working on it for an hour to two hours a day. Okay. That's what I figured out how to do. And once I had that system down, I was publishing, you know, the first six Micah Reed books all came out in less than a year. Okay. I'm not exactly sure how I achieved that kind of output. I think partially I was just really excited about the series. Mm-hmm. And back then that was when there were no ads. So I wasn't spending a whole lot of time on ads. You know, there weren't all these other side things like podcasts and other admin things that I have now that even though I have more time to fill my day, I have a lot more stuff I have to do. Whereas back then I was mostly just focusing on getting my series long because that's what everybody said, you know, in 2015, it was like, you have to have a long series. It's the only way that you're going to make any money. Mm-hmm. And then, so I was like, well, I've got two books out in the series. I need to have six, seven, 10 books out right now today. Mm-hmm. And that was my early focus. Yeah. Yeah. 
That's good stuff, man. Good stuff. I feel like I had a crazy productive period when I first started like that as well. And then I kind of have evened off a little bit into something that's a little more sustainable for me because I don't think I could have kept going at the rate I was going. So eventually the time comes and you're like, I'm trying to ditch the software game. I'm out. These people, they're not the people that I want to be with right now. I want to be welcomed by the authorial womb. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so, sure. <laughs> what did that process look like for you? Because, you know, I asked Nick the same thing and he kind of had, you know, the way that he went about it. How do you, because I would have wager that there are a number of people that will listen to this that would love to be full-time authors. Then maybe they don't know everything that's entailed with it, you know, but they would love it. How did you go from one place to the other? Well, I don't have that kind of romantic story of that. I was tracking my income. And as soon as my income started to reach my day job level, I said, now I can quit. I was the other kind. <laughs> I lost my job and said, oh, crap, I have to figure out how to make this work. <laughs> Is that, you know, I was working for the software company and I loved working there initially, but some things changed and I had a different boss and that boss and I did not get along, yada, yada. I left in 2019 and said, okay, now I've got to figure out how to make this work. So then I like started taking, I took Mark Dawson's ads course and I started shifting not just about learning to writing craft, but about learning about the marketing side too. Cause like I have to not just write more books, I have to make them sell better. Mm. And so it wasn't born out of achieving some kind of milestone. It was born out of the desperation of <laughs> getting fired from my job. Hey, maybe that's the best way to do it sometimes, you know, yeah. put, put your back against the wall and start swinging. Oh, yeah, no, I dig it, man. That makes a lot of sense. And so now where would you say you are in your writing journey? What are you most excited about right now? Are you most excited about still writing the words? Are you most excited about kind of tweaking marketing and ads? Like what, when you get up, what excites you about your job right now? Oh, that's a good question. What most excites me about writing? I don't know. I don't actually like typing on the keyboard, but I really like when things are done. <laughs> but yeah. my, my favorite day of a writing project is when I finish the last word of the last scene. Yeah, I'm with um, you. So what excites me about writing is just being able to have these stories. Mm -hmm. It's not the writing of them so much, but having these stories and being able to just daydream about where the stories can go. And I'm at the point in my career now where most of my books are spinoffs from previous books. So I like building on that world. Mm -hmm. You know, I like fleshing out the characters. I like building the world. I like seeing something that was at one time, just something inside my brain become mm -hmm. something that other people can enjoy and I mm -hmm. get feedback from those people. And I'm like, that used to just live inside my head. And now you know all of it. Yeah. And so I guess that's probably what excites me the most is creating the worlds and delivering the worlds to fans. Yeah, I dig it, man. I dig it. Yeah, I always say that, like, I hate writing, but I love having written. Having written. Yeah. You know, when I stand up for the day and I'm done, I'm just like, oh, that was great, man. I, I'm terrified to have to do it again, though, every day. Yeah. My dad once told me, he said, I hate to learn, but I love to know things. Yeah. And that blew my mind. I was like, yeah. my whole life I've thought about that. Yeah. Yeah. That's solid, man. That's a really good quote. Yeah. I like that a lot. So where would you see kind of the industry heading in the next few years? You know, we do like, let's play futurist a little bit, right? We talk about this kind of stuff a lot. If you had to look five years from now, what kind of changes would you see happening in the industry? Is it Amazon shifting and making things more difficult? Is it people teaming up? Is it, you know, a different, a potentially different kind of uh, marketing avenue that we're not considering? Like, 
What do you think publishing looks like in five years? Well, you know, I think about this a lot. I think about a podcast interview with Hugh Howey from about five years ago where somebody asked him that same question. And he said that he thought the future of publishing was going to be that people would collect around certain editors. He thought that editors were going to rise up to become powerful in the self-publishing industry. And so that if your book was worked on by this certain editor, then that was a good path to success. Uh, sort of like you know how people learn how to make sushi in Japan. It's all about who taught you how to make noodles or sushi or whatever it is. And then that's mm -hmm. your lineage. That's mm -hmm. your sales lineage. But I don't think it's going to be editors. But I do think that there is going to be a shift in the industry where we're going to see things clustering. Mm -hmm. I think we're going to see collectives form. Because publishing companies exist because they needed to put people and resources together to bring books to market. We don't need that anymore. We don't need a giant company full of people making salaries to bring books to market. But I think there's still safety in numbers. There's still collective power. Mm -hmm. And so I think we're going to see things like LMBPN publishing, you know, like mm -hmm. Craig and Michael Anderley's company. We're going to mm -hmm. see more things like that, more things like whatever the author equivalent is of author-owned comics or... Image, like Image Comics? Yeah, what do they call it? Something creator-owned. Mm. Creator yeah. Creator-owned yeah. comics. Mm -hmm. I think we're going to see a lot more companies like that spring up. There'll be small um, self-publisher-owned publishing houses that will take on other people. Mm -hmm. And will it end up just like the big five? Probably. Mm. <laughs> probably over time those clusters will form and keep informing and forming until there's you know like if you want to be a thriller writer you have to be a part of this 200 person thriller writers collective if you want your stuff to get seen yeah yeah i mean you're probably right i mean that's what happened with the trad world like with the right i mean a really good editor is you know who the agents like pitching stuff to mm -hmm. and you know like i'm not gonna lie like i'm happy with the way that my career is going, but if I could sit down with Emily Bestler, you know, who publishes like the Brad Thor and the Vince Flynn and the Jack Reacher stuff, the Lee Child stuff, like I would definitely, yeah, you know, talk to her, you know, she's a, you know, really amazing traditional editor. So yeah, it makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot yeah. of sense. So, all right, pop quiz, hot shot. Okay. I was once on a podcast of yours called my favorite thriller. Yes. Okay where we talked about my favorite thriller book, right? Mm -hmm. And in the moment, I said without remorse, it maybe could have also been The Hot Kid by Elmore Leonard, but it just kind of, that's more of a mystery, I think. If we were doing that for you, what is your favorite thriller book? My favorite thriller book? Yes, sir. This is a little bit of a non-standard answer because it doesn't squarely fit in the thriller genre, but there's a book by an author named Max Berry mm -hmm. called Lexicon. That's one of my all-time favorite books. Max Berry wrote Syrup that was made into a movie. Mm, um, I haven't heard of it. Okay. He writes kind of satirical comedy thrillers, kind of. Okay. Sort of like Lee Eisenberg. But yeah, Lexicon is a story. I don't even know how to explain it. It's so weird and complex. It's about these people who discover a way to use words to control other people's minds but it's not as like sci-fi as it sounds there's all like mm -hmm. a logical explanation for it in the book and then it's about this guy who gets caught up in a case of mistaken identity and the very first chapter this guy's at an airport and he gets kidnapped and dragged into a bathroom and they stab him in the eyes with these things and it's so intense and so crazy that you're just like you spend the rest of the book figuring out what's happening it's one of those kind of things where you start off in media res and then you just have to figure out the world as you go mm -hmm. so that one Probably. Wow. Probably. Probably. I mean, 
I consider Stephen King's drawing of the three to be a thriller. Someone was telling me about that. I haven't read it. What's that about? It's the second book in his Dark Tower series. Um, oh, I stopped at the first one. Yeah, the first one's kind of strange because it's a flashback within a flashback within a flashback. Yeah, um, it lost me a little bit. But then the second book is pretty much straight up thriller. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I may have to give it a shot, man. They kind of like, I like the whole vibe of, you know, Roland Deschain and Tull yeah. and all that, man. I was digging it. The man in black, that first line is just an incredible line. Yeah, you know what I mean? Line. But then like by the end of it, I was like, man, what did I just do to myself? (laughs) (laughs) The whole series is extremely weird. It's super Mm. weird. But then it's also self-referential because Stephen King in a later book, he is a character in the book. Mm. Like Kurt Vonnegut did that in Breakfast of Champions. But like the Dark Tower series is about Stephen King's life. Mm. You know, like in real life, Stephen King was hit by a van and survived. But in the Dark Tower series, Stephen King is hit by the van and dies. So it's like the things that happen in the Dark Tower only happen because Stephen King died. It's super weird and brilliant and just enormous. Yeah. It's seven books. That's like 4,000 pages. He went from like just making authors like the cool characters in the book <laughs> <laughs> to make yeah. himself one, you know? Totally, like, yeah. Wasn't enough. So right on, man. Well, I tell you what, man. I think that was a good amount of time, man. I don't want right. to hold you up much longer. Uh, anything you want to add before we get out of here? I feel like I should add in some regular thrillers too. maybe hunt for red October. I mean, okay. if you strip away about a hundred pages from hunt for red October, it would be a perfect thriller. Yeah. That's what we had kind of talked about that. <laughs> I before. think we've had this conversation before. <laughs> He's so in depth, dude. He's Take so out a hundred pages of capital names for things and uh, statistics for <laughs> uh, air pressure underneath submarine. <laughs> Take all that stuff out. And you'd have an amazing thriller. Yeah, that's good stuff, man. Uh, Clancy's really good, man. Yeah. Uh, who, who else? Like, what about your kind of reading habits in general? Like, I, for some reason, this is making me wonder this now. Like, what kind of stuff do you like to read the most? You know, I read all kinds of stuff. I'm a very wide genre reader, which I think probably caused a problem for me when I started writing because, you know, I haven't been like a mystery and thriller reader exclusively my whole life. Mm-hmm. I've read all kinds of fantasy and sci fi. And all kinds of stuff. And so when I first started writing, I was like kitchen sinking tropes into my book. Mm -hmm. Because I was like, I like this stuff from fantasy. I like this stuff from thrillers. Mm -hmm. I like this stuff from private eye novels. And I just kind of threw it all together. You know, I've I've learned not to do that anymore. Yeah. I've learned to just stick to one genre's tropes. But I read Super Writer. Like right now I'm reading one of the Drizzt books. Drizzt O'Warden. It's a fantasy series. Mm. I'm reading Sojourn, which is a, he's an, a dark elf who comes out of a cave and is trying to find his way. It's very nerdy, but I really, but I like it. (laughs) That's all that matters, man. We're all, this is a safe space for nerds. (laughs) It might not be a safe space for much, but it's a safe space for nerds. Excellent. So right on that. Thanks for hopping on with me. Yeah. And if people want to check out the Micah Reed or the Lane Parrish stuff, uh, where would you send them? You can find all my stuff at royalarchbooks.com or jimheskett.com. Right on. Go check out Jim's stuff. Thanks for listening. For myself and Jim Heskett, I'm Ari McGee saying this meeting is over. <laughs>